Hi, and welcome to the Reef Roundup podcast, where we dive into marine conservation stories from around the world. We're your hosts. I'm Graham. And I'm Tamara, and we can't wait to dive into this episode. Join us and meet some of the many amazing people who are doing exciting work to save the ocean for future generations, with a focus on restoration, ecology, and environment. We hope today's show is a wake-up call, but also brings you both hope and inspiration as you learn about the amazing work that's being done and how you too can be an ocean champion. Let's get started. Hello again, and welcome to another episode of Reef Roundup. We're excited today to be welcoming Ellie Casement. Ellie and I are studying in a grad school program together, and there's a lot of amazing colleagues that are part of this program, people I'm really inspired by, but I'm so honored to have Ellie on today. She really stands out for me as someone who is not only passionate about coral reefs, but has already been working in the field, thesis in Ecuador, study abroad in Panama, and then completing a Fulbright in Honduras, doing really cool work. So very excited to have her on the show today. Ellie, thank you for joining us. Hi, Graham. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. (laughs) Thank you. So why don't we get started just talking a little bit about how you first got into the oceans? Like, what was your path there? And then how did you start deciding that this was actually the career path? It wasn't just a passion. This was a career path. So I think I actually got introduced to the ocean at a fairly young age, which is a bit weird seeing as I was from the Midwest, born in the Midwest, raised in the Midwest. But when I was five, my family moved to the island of St. Lucia for a year. And so I did my last year of preschool there. And we basically spent every single day after school at the beach. And my parents both learned to dive right before we got to the island. And so they would take us out snorkeling. I was five, my brother was six. And We basically were snorkeling on reefs before I learned to ride a bike. I learned to ID my parrotfish before I could really know any birds or know, I don't know, my letters in school. My brother and I would argue through our snorkels underwater about if the boy was, if the fish was a boy fish or a girl fish. So yeah, that was kind of my, my early introduction. And then we moved back to the Midwest and I grew up in Minnesota. And so pretty far from the ocean, but surrounded by a lot of water. Yeah. And then when I turned 12, I got certified to dive as well, as did my brother. And basically all of our family vacations after that were back to some island location where we could dive as a family. So that was kind of how I got introduced to the ocean at a pretty young age. Amazing. You were identifying, like you said, parrotfish before you even knew the names of birds on land. (laughs) That's a nice play on words, too. (laughs) That's so cool. I When I meet people who have been diving from such a young age, it's always like I have a little bit of jealousy just because I didn't start diving until I was like around 20. That's amazing. And how did you bring that early love of the ocean back to Minnesota? And how did that evolve eventually into your studies? I think that for a long time, I saw diving as kind of a separate Thing than my career. I saw it as the thing I enjoyed doing. I loved being in tropical locations. And I really looked up to the dive masters who would lead our family when we went on these dive trips. But I didn't really see myself having a career in diving or in research, uh, at least not marine research. And so when I went to college, I ended up doing a lot of different projects actually within biology. I thought I wanted to study monkeys. I thought I wanted to study flowers. I worked in a bird lab. I worked on a bunch of different projects, basically everything but marine research for a really long time. And it took me a while to kind of connect 
my love for the ocean and my love for diving with an actual career in research or in marine ecology. And so I was basically on a dive trip with my family in Roatan and my mom had been looking at the website beforehand as moms do and she was like, oh, you should talk to this woman. She owns a or she runs the marine station next to the place that we're going to be diving. And I was like, mom, leave me alone. Stop trying to get me to network with people. But I actually ended up emailing the woman and she invited me to go on a nursery cleaning dive with her at their coral restoration nursery. And so I spent one afternoon with her, getting to know her, cleaning corals in their nursery. And through that experience, she told me that they're running an internship and I should apply for the next summer. And so I ended up doing that internship two years later because it was COVID summer. So it was a bit, (laughs) things got a bit pushed off, but yeah, two years later, I ended up going back and doing an internship in marine research, learned a bunch of fish identification, a bunch of coral identification, and then through that, met people at the marine park and started thinking about ways that I could move back to the island and keep working with them. And so that's kind of how I came to finding the Fulbright and my collaborators. Amazing. And and so in university, you said you were like kind of studying a little bit of everything. How did you, I don't know if it was a moment, I don't know if it was a process of discovery. Was there was there a light bulb time where, where you just realized like, oh, why am I not doing the thing that I have loved doing all of my life? Or I think there was kind of a lead up and then there was kind of a light bulb moment. I was doing a lot of work with birds. My thesis, my undergrad thesis is on birds. And I actually think now looking back, there's a lot of similarities between birds and fish. But I was really, really into birds. And I was in Ecuador doing field work. And I was surrounded by people who were like really, really into birds. And I realized as I was there for multiple weeks, for multiple months, that these people were talking about birds the way that I talked about fish with my family and they would get up early and go look at birds and try to identify all the birds they could at five in the morning and I was that way about fish and like I would sit at the table after a dive and go through our fish books and try to identify everything I had seen and so I kind of realized okay I do like birds but I'm not sure that this is the field that gets me not the field but the subject that gets me so excited that I'll wake up at five in the morning to pour over the field guides, which I will do for for fish. And so I think, yeah, then immediately after my thesis, my thesis fieldwork in Ecuador was the internship. And so kind of also seeing the duality of, okay, being in Ecuador, realizing maybe I don't, birds are not maybe the thing I want to study for my whole life. And then going to Roatan and being like, this is, this is what I want to study. I'm here in this, on this island and being so excited about fish. I think that was kind of the moment where I was like, okay, I think this is maybe more up my alley. <laughs> I I think, you know, a lot of the people we've had on the podcast have had some, some of them gradual, some of them like, you know, a bolt of lightning moment that makes them realize that. And it, I think it's it's always so cool to hear those stories just because, you know, everyone knows we dedicate a lot of the time in our lives to whatever focus our work on, right? And to do that around something that you like really care in your heart about and that also excites you and that you're willing to wake up at five in the morning. Like, like what do they say? If you're, if you love what you do, like you'll never work a day in your life. So yeah, that's, that's awesome. Why don't we dive a little bit more into the Fulbright then? Tell us a little bit too about like, what is a Fulbright for any of our listeners who might not know? How does someone like decide they want to do a Fulbright? What's the process? And then actually, you know, what did you end up focusing on? Uh, so to start, a Fulbright is a 
program put forth by the U.S. State Department that is to foster uh, intercultural exchange between American citizens and citizens from countries all around the world. And so there's a couple of different programs they have. One of them is an English teaching program, and then one of them is a research or study program, which is the one that I was doing. And for the research program, basically you submit a proposal to the Fulbright Association, and it's a proposal of any research that you want to do in any field that you think is interesting. It could be sciences, it could be arts, it could be music, really anything. And you also specify a country that you want to do your research in. That is probably important for the project itself. So mine was Honduras, and they basically read through all those and select projects that they like or that they think would be beneficial to foster, as I said, kind of cultural exchange or also that would be supported by the country as well. So basically, it's a combination of the U.S. liking a project and then Honduras, in this in this case, wanting to support my project as well. I heard about the Fulbright when I was in university, and it was kind of in the back of my mind when I was doing my internship. I was like, maybe this would be a way to come back here and continue doing work. And so through that, I kind of talked to a couple people who I thought could be good collaborators, asked if they would support my research if I, were gonna, if I was going to come back. Also during my internship, I was trying to think of a project that I could potentially build off of for a Fulbright. So that's kind of how I designed the research that I was doing during that month-long period that I was initially in Roatan. And then I kind of designed a proposal that was built off of that pilot research. And so my project is kind of two parts, but basically I was looking at abundance, diversity, and behavior of reef fish in relation to stony coral tissue loss disease, which is a big, a very devastating disease that has passed the Caribbean in the past few years and wiped out a lot of different coral reefs in the region and led to the near extinction of a lot of coral species. There's over 30 species that are susceptible. Several have gone functionally extinct in various reefs, causing huge changes throughout the entire Caribbean. And so when I was in Honduras the first time, it was kind of mid-epidemic and we are seeing really rampant disease on the island. And I was looking at butterfly fish behavior in relation to disease because they are coral eating. And so as a lot of their food sources were diseased and disappearing from the reef, I was curious what they were eating. And then my bigger project with the Fulbright, part of it was again looking at butterfly fish a year after. So after a lot of the disease had kind of passed through the area and there was a lot less coral on the reefs. And then I was also interested in doing just uh, whole community-wide surveys of fish diversity and fish abundance uh, repeated across a couple different months while I was there. So basically, I was really interested in fish, as I've mentioned, but especially because no one had been looking at fish yet. The disease had, disease had just passed through, and most research had been focusing on the corals, and there was nothing published on fish, and no one knew what was happening with the fish, where they were the populations going to collapse? Were they maintaining kind of the same populations? No one had any any idea. And so that was kind of where my interest for the Fulbright lay. Yeah. You know, just imagining as you're, you know, there originally and then thinking about, you know, coming back uh, and also seeing that, you know, stony coral tissue loss is hitting the island. That must have been a kind of difficult time, I would imagine, when you were like away just wondering what was going on. Like, what is, what are you going to face when you get back there? And also, I guess, you know, when you do, you know, care about these fish and, and, and had already been kind of observing them and studying them, like, 
you know, what is the end result going to be for them? So we like to touch on this in this show a little bit on emotional aspects of some of the devastation that we're seeing in our natural world, right? So like talk to, a little bit about that and then also just go into your research a little bit. I know you we had spoken before um, we started the interview and some of the data is still being processed, but just tell us a little bit about some of those results. Yeah, so I think first off about seeing all the devastation and degradation of reefs, which is such a recurring topic. I think you almost get like numb to it sometimes when you just hear and see so much news like every year. It's hard to kind of be hit with it again and like really see the importance of it and impact. But I still remember when I was doing my internship, we were treating stony coral tissue loss disease as part of the internship. So we'd go out and put antibiotics on the corals, try to document how how far the disease had spread. And one day we were going to go up the island to an area that hadn't been hit by the, by the disease. And my internship coordinator was so excited for us to see this like really nice reef. This is how Roatan used to look. And and we get up there, we've gone like many hours up the island and we jump in the water and disease everywhere. And she had been there, you know, just a month earlier and said there'd been nothing. And this reef had still been, well, pristine, not pristine, but in terms of the disease, there had been no disease and it was everywhere. And it was impacting all of these corals that were kind of the first stage to be the first corals to be hit. And you could just see like the pillar corals all fighting the disease, the maize corals all fighting off the disease. And we got out of the water and she just like cried. And this is, you know, a a 50-year-old woman who spent her life dedicated to coral reefs, who's lived on the island for decades and who's been fighting the disease and holding it together for kind of all of us. And she just cried. And then we went to another spot that actually hadn't been hit by the disease yet that we could see. And we're swimming around, diving. And right as we get out of the water, we saw one coral that had the disease and it was kind of like that's ground zero for this reef and it's kind of, it's like those sort of things that you see and the speed of it is just incredible by the time I'd come back a year later the disease had passed through there were like I think there's like three pillar corals left on one side of the island so the speed of it is really amazing and I think seeing it like firsthand like that really shows the devastation in a, in a new light I guess um and I think it's the same with bleaching. You can be on a healthy reef one month and a month later, the temperatures spike and everything is white and it's just so apparent and so fast, which is kind of scary and heartbreaking, obviously. But yeah, so that was definitely hard to see. And when I spent a year in Rotana, we saw bleaching, we saw disease, and it kind of became normal again, in a sense. You just kind of get used to it, which sucks, but you just get used to that's the way the reef looks. But then sometimes I would also kind of take a step back and look down at the reef and you'd see how much of the coral is gone. And it's pretty, pretty heartbreaking to see. I also did a bit of dive guiding while I was there and working in the nursery and things like that and taking divers out to the nursery, taking them out on dives and especially giving them some information about the reef. And sometimes they would come up and be super excited and super happy. And sometimes they'd come up and be like, where's the coral? And you'd be like, wait, where is the coral? Yeah, you're right. Where's the coral? Like, so I think, yeah, there are kind of different moments where it hits. Uh, but in terms of my research, basically, I spent a long time following around butterfly fish. I love butterfly fish. So that was kind of like my like love project. I just think they're fascinating. I think they're so cute. I think they're amazing. And I was just very interested in these little fish. And so for that part of the project, I was looking at what they're eating in relation to 
disease over multiple years. So this year when the disease had passed through and then comparing that hopefully to the year before when there was more disease on the island, like more present disease, I guess. And so basically I was on I was scuba diving and I would find a fish and I would follow it around for five minutes at a time, writing down everything that it ate. So I would see it eating, you know, a maize coral and I'd say, okay, four bites MMEA, which is like the code for maize coral. Oh, moving over here to an algae. Okay, one bite from that algae. Oh, okay, moving over here to the sponge. One bite for that sponge. So it was, it was definitely a full focus project. You look away, and then suddenly the fish is gone, and you're like, no. <laughs> and obviously they can swim, and they are about the size of your palms, so they can fit in a lot smaller places than I can. But they're generally not spooked by humans, which is a good thing as well. So yeah, I just would follow that fish around for five minutes, write down everything it ate. And find a new fish, follow it around, write down everything that it ate. So far, yeah, I still have a lot of analysis to do with this, but it seems like there's not a decrease in fish in relation to a decrease in coral. They seem to be pretty resilient fish. And also these fish are supposed to be corallivores, obligate corallivores is what some people say. Some people say facultative. So maybe either most of their diet is coral or like almost all their diet is coral. But from what I've seen, that does not seem to be the case, honestly. It seems like they're pretty plastic, I guess you would say. They can switch dietary resources depending on what's available. And that was what my research in my internship also showed, that fish on reefs with less coral were just eating less coral, but they weren't taking less bites or eating less food. It's hard to say without doing stomach contents analyses of what they're actually eating because sometimes you see them bite sand and you don't really know what it is but so far it seems like the numbers are holding strong in terms of how many fish are on the reef how many butterfly fish and it seems like they're still getting they're still having the same number of bites i don't know if that translates exactly to having full stomachs but yeah they seem to be pretty resilient little little fish which is which is nice positive which is good you know yeah um and and is it switching more towards their like eating more algae or like what is what are they eating more of now yeah so it seemed like at least in my preliminary study during my internship they were eating more algae on reefs that had less coral they weren't eating majority a majority of algae in their diet but there was like a shift to more algae in the diet they're not like parrotfish or like blue tangs that just like really intensively eat algae but they're kind of are they're called butterfly fish because they flit around and they just like take a couple bites from things and yeah so it seemed like a lot more algae was coming into their diets and based on what i saw like just remembering back to following around it also seems like that is still true i still have to kind of go through all that analysis still but yeah it seems like they're eating a lot more algae and a lot more like invertebrates potentially like uh, sponges or just like taking maybe more varied diets as well. I'm interested to see. It seems like they would take like one bite and then move on versus one bite and then move on versus with a coral where they might take, you know, six or seven bites. So that's fascinating. Initial hopeful news, I guess, to hear that their populations aren't crashing at the same rate as, as the coral that are supporting them. Let's go a little bit more into just what brought you now into this master's program? What is your focus within this program? And what are uh, anything that you've actually learned in the last semester? Like it could be about coral reefs. It could just be about anything to do with the ocean that is was kind of like something new and exciting and kind of like got your brain thinking. So I found out about the program actually when I was doing my internship. One of the 
women who was working at the Rotan Marine Park did this program and she mentioned it in her little like introduction when she came to talk to us interns and I was like oh that sounds like a cool program and then I emailed her about it and heard more about it and yeah here I am and my focus within the program I guess I'm not sure if there's one focus specifically but I'm doing a bit of experimental marine ecology which I think will be fascinating because I've done a lot of field work but I've done yeah I guess I've done a lot of like field work and a lot of observation work but doing that has also just kind of shown me that I really need to integrate that with experimental work as well as laboratory work in order to have a better sense of what's going on and more more fully answer sort of these big questions that I'm interested in and so I'll be doing experimental ecology in Ghent next semester which I'm super excited for I'm really excited to learn about stable isotopes which is a method for learning what things are eating based on their tissue. And so I think that'll be really cool because it's just got me thinking like, how else could I find out what butterfly fish are eating? And then my last semester before my thesis will be in France and I'm going to be doing the coastal ecosystem functioning module. So looking at how coastal ecosystems work as well as what contributes to a functional ecosystem in like a biological sense and how can we protect those? How can we research those? And so, yeah, that's kind of my focus within the program. And then in terms of interesting things, I've actually never taken a marine biology class during my undergrad, so I'm learning a lot. Everything I feel like I've learned has been like kind of on the fly, like what I've had to learn just like do field work. So it's really nice to be in a class for like oceanography and learn about all of these big processes that are so important on a global scale as well as a local scale. In oceanography, I think just learning about like the, the morphology of the ocean floor, uh, the processes that regulate like the thermoclines and things like that are super interesting. And yeah, those are kind of the areas that I had very little knowledge. And I am very excited to have this very introductory start to my knowledge and then continue learning about it and applying it uh, for future research projects, I think. Yeah. Amazing. Also, totally second how fascinating it is to be taking our oceanography classes, learning about the geology and like history of the sediment types and everything is just mind blowing. And for any of our listeners who that might sound boring to, because it probably would have sounded boring to me, like, you know, six months ago, I'd highly encourage you just like go to YouTube and spend a few hours going down rabbit holes with, with that because it's going to blow your mind up. <laughs> You know, because you've been working in the fields a lot and been in these areas that were really affected by the diseases that we spoke of, as well as, of course, bleaching generally, I'm just wondering if you've had any personal thoughts or, you know, had had any mentors in the work that you've been doing who shared some interesting thoughts with you in regards to, you know, like the UN Environmental Program released a report last year and they said, hey, it's great that everyone's doing um, coral reef restoration, conservation, et cetera, but it's not happening on a scale that's large enough. There's sometimes insufficient monitoring to ensure its effectiveness. There's sometimes lack of long-term stakeholder agreement. So like you might be this person who's passionate about it, you go set it up, but then it's like, the stakeholders in the area aren't like really on board, so it doesn't really long-term success. So like there's many challenges, right? That's just a few a few of those that they listed. I was wondering in the places that you've worked, have you seen any ways that helped overcome those? 
So I, in addition to doing my own research, I was working in collaboration with the Marine Park. And so they were giving me a lot of support to conduct my research. And so I was helping on a lot of their programs, including the coral restoration program. So I helped to maintain the nursery, run the nursery. I was working with my sort of boss, collaborator, and very good friend, Grace Horbury. And she was running the coral restoration program through RMP, through Oten Marine Park. And I agree it can be hard to see impact of core restoration on a scale that seems like enough. But I also think that a big part of core restoration is engagement. I think that if you can get people interested in coral reefs, if you can help them see the dangers that coral reefs are facing, then that is a huge positive and will make them more engaged in policy, in boating, in wanting to protect these ecosystems. And so I think as part of their coral restoration program at RMP, they helped, they wanted to get divers involved in the coral nursery. And so I would go to dive shops, for example, and teach coral restoration courses and bring people who were just there on vacation out to the nursery, show them how we clean the nursery. We would take corals from the nursery and outplant them on the reef. And I think that a lot of those courses kind of showed me the impact of just helping one person see what they can do in a hands-on matter, in a hands-on way to help the reef. There were so many amazing people who I got to interact with who said that this was such an incredible experience, who didn't think that anything, that they could do anything to help the reef. And maybe putting 10 fragments of coral doesn't change the reef in a huge sense, but it is 10 more fragments of coral that are out on the reef first off. And if it can give them a positive experience and a new perspective on the reef and their kind of job and responsibility to protect it, then I think it's a huge benefit. And another program that we did was we um, were trying to get local kids involved because a lot of Roatan is built on tourism, but there's also tons of people who live on the island who are from Honduras who sometimes feel closed off from the diving community and therefore don't really feel the need to protect the reefs, which is totally fair if they're excluded from that, from, you know, from being a part of that community or that industry. And so I think getting local communities involved and interested and inspiring local kids to also want to do coral reef restoration or research or see themselves as scientists or as divers is really important as well. So those are my thoughts on things that RMP was doing that I thought were really beneficial. And I think overall, there's a lot of research or not, there's a lot of news lately about coral restoration being, you know, a uh, waste of resources, a waste of money, ineffective, ineffective, inefficient. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of news lately about coristration being a waste of money and a waste of resources and just an inefficient way of helping reefs and helping the overall problems facing the planet. But I also think, you know, we as a species have put these other species in a position of peril. We are the ones endangering corals. And I think similarly, it's unfair to say, well, good riddance to them. We can't afford to spend money on helping this species that we've basically driven extinct survive. And I mean, obviously, I'm just one person and I'm quite young. But I also will say that I saw a post recently from Luis Rocha, who is one of the foremost ichthyologists in the world. He works for the California Academy of Sciences. And he is very impressive person and very, very kind of hotshot person in in the world of 
fish biology and marine ecology and restoration. And he doesn't actually work in restoration, but he's a fish biologist and has helped on a lot of, he worked in Rotan. He's doing research in Rotan right now, but he's from Brazil. And anyways, I saw a post from him recently in response to a lot of the criticism about restoration. And he said, you know, from his point of view, if spending money, even vast sums of money can help one species not go extinct. In his perspective, it's worth it because this is our fault and we can't just kind of pick and choose or else we're not going to choose anything at a certain extent. If if we can do what we can and it takes resources to protect and preserve a species, one species, two species, three species, it's worth it. And I kind of agree and I think we're put in a position sometimes as marine biologists to be like, well, I guess we don't need to take care of this one. We'll let this one go just because there isn't the money or there isn't the time or there isn't the human power, the bodies to do the work. But I also think we need to hold ourselves accountable and yeah, take responsibility because if we at least say, no, it is our responsibility to do this, then we're going to give it our best shot to actually protect these species. So that's kind of my perspective on that. I love I love that. And I think one thing that we've been covering in one of our courses, which is uh, about marine policy, is just about how you can factor in costs, you know, up front, rather than right now, we live in this world, especially with the marine world, and I guess just the natural world generally, where we're just constantly taking and then like once in a while when things get really bad, being like, oh, shoot, we better pay a little bit back or we better like spend some money to like patch up this like thing that went really wrong. Whereas like hopefully can move forward into a world where we're factoring the cost of any sort of destruction or devastation or impacts into the outset, because I think it might eliminate a lot of what we're doing that's harmful before it even gets started. And then if not, if we are going to do something that's harmful, there's going to be money there. So uh, thank you so much for touching on that. Kind of along the same lines, but just, you know, going to the personal level, like what do you suggest that our listeners can do in their day-to-day lives to make some sort of impact on the ocean? And I want to go back to something that we, we started with, which is for a lot of your life, you weren't even living by the ocean, right? You were living quite far away. So like someone who maybe loves the ocean, but doesn't even live close to the ocean, can they be involved somehow? If so, like, what are some ideas? I think the biggest thing that I would recommend for people all over in any field, in any job is just education. If you're working in the dive industry or you're working in marine biology or you're a scuba diver, there's always room to keep learning. And that's, I think, something that I push myself to do, whether it's learn new fish, whether it's learn about a new reef, or just be aware of the local places that you're visiting, the local places that you're contributing to the tourism industries in, and, and try to be mindful about your impact there. And I think even when you're not living by the ocean or diving every day or working in the field, trying to educate yourself on what are sustainable food options, for example, in in this area? What are the best fish that I can buy if I do eat fish? Because depending on where you are, it's going to be totally different. For example, in Minnesota, we should eat the fish that are from the lakes there if we can, as opposed to the fish that's been shipped across the world. I think also being kind to yourself and giving yourself space to learn and to improve and to grow is really important as well, because I think we can start to be overly judgmental of ourselves. And then 
be like, well, if I if I chose to drive my car today and not bike, then I obviously did something bad for the planet. So why even bother with these other things? You know, if I fly a plane, it totally outweighs the good of eating plant-based for a year. So why even bother? But I think, you know, just doing small steps, even if you can't do it all, no one can do it all. And so even if you're just going to do small, small things, they still add up. And I mean, maybe, yes, you need to fly your plane, not your plane, but take a plane to go visit family. And that's okay. And it doesn't mean that you shouldn't think about other things you can, on the day-to-day basis just because you had to do something that, quote, is terrible for the environment that doesn't discount every other thing that you're doing in your daily life. And so I think just being kind to yourself and giving yourself space to make small changes, uh, you don't need to make all the changes at once. And I think that's kind of the best way forward as well. Yeah, small things add up. So Amazing. Well, th- thank you so much, Ellie. It was such a pleasure to have you on the show today. I learned a lot about you and just about the the cool research that you've been engaging in and, and the different reefs that you've been, you know, diving in and visiting and studying. And thank you so much for sharing all of that. Yeah, thank you for having me, Graham. It was so nice to talk and what else was I on? Really nice to also remember my past year and kind of think about the bigger impacts of it. If anyone, you know, of our listeners has heard this and feels inspired or wants to learn more about what you're doing or learn more about Fulbright or something along those lines, would it be all right if they reached out to you? Yeah, that would be totally fine. I'd love to talk to any and everyone. If anyone has any questions about the research that I did or the Fulbright, as well as if they're going to Honduras and they have some questions about the island or getting involved with the marine park there while they're visiting, yeah, I'd be happy to offer some advice or some thoughts. And yeah, you can reach out. My email is elliecasement at gmail.com. Just my full name at gmail.com. But yeah, thank you for having me, Graham. It's been such a pleasure. And yeah, thank you. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us for another edition of the Reef Roundup podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please take a moment and subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And don't forget to add us on Instagram at Reef Roundup for news about the ocean, inspiring stories, and more. You can also find more about us as well as our guests at reefroundup.com. We release a new episode every two weeks. See See you soon. soon.